Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. All right, guys, today let's solve some problems. And better yet, let's solve some social problems. Those are tricky, right? Well, today my guest is walking us through her recent study that teaches a way to approach social problem solving. This is a topic we haven't really been able to get into too much on the podcast, and I love talking about problem solving skills. It is so important to teach, and we have to be really purposeful with how we teach this skill. Today I'm joined by Dr. Vic Castillo, who's an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University and Endicott College, and we are talking all things problem solving, why this skill is so important, why it needs maybe more purposeful direct instruction and why social problems are so important to really address because we know these can have big impacts on our kids' lives. So let's go ahead and hear from Vic on how we can approach social problem solving. Hi, Vic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I am excited to have you because I love watching your Instagram stories and your reels, and I think you do a great way of explaining behavioral topics in a really fun way that's easy to understand, which is not always so easy. Oh, good. Well, that's good to hear. That's um, the purpose, so I'm (laughs) glad to hear that it's working out. And I'm excited about this topic. So today we're going to talk about problem-solving skills, which is something that I also love talking about because... I think especially in classrooms, we're not really thinking about this as much as we should on how important this skill is, but that it also has to be taught, that we can't just sit back and be like, oh, our kids are going to like figure out how to solve problems. And it can be a little tricky because it's not like a rote skill you can memorize or anything like that. 
And today we're going to be talking about using problem solving strategies for social problems, which is, I think, so huge. And, And why is this such an important skill for kids to learn? Yeah, I think like you mentioned, with problem solving specifically, it's this really like complex skill that doesn't always look the same, that can take on so many different sort of forms. And it becomes, for most of us, something that we just kind of figure out through trial and error. But for so many learners, it can be so beneficial to actually teach it and not just rely on that sort of natural trial and error approach for developing problem solving skills. And even for ourselves, if it's something we can practice, it's something we can become better at. So I think there's a lot of benefit in focusing on problem solving specifically as a skill. And with social components to problem solving, I think it's especially important because a lot of times we don't even really realize how our social interactions require a problem solving approach. There are so many times where we might have conflicts with others, whether they be um bigger conflicts, like some sort of relational strain or smaller conflicts, like just having to share an item or having to take on a different perspective. And those can all benefit from a problem solving approach. And so sort of viewing a social component to problem solving is a great way to help build and develop relationships between individuals. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the more and more complex our social relationships get, that problem solving is required more and more. And when you were explaining that like trial and error process that most of us utilize to figure out how to solve problems, I was thinking about that in relation to, to social relationships, that those social consequences of trial and error can be, I think, a lot harder for kids to handle too. Like if you need more practice and you need more experience to get that in your repertoire, but you're kind of hitting that error piece more often, those social consequences are, are, could be more long lasting of people not wanting to hang out with you, talk to you and that, and that's hard. Yeah, for sure. And even within like family relationships, um, that trial and error approach can lead to that additional stress. So if you have some sort of like sibling or parent conflict and the trial and error approach is leading to a lot of errors, it may even build in some sort of aversive learning pairing where now the relationship with that individual becomes something that's avoided or that is escaped um, just because of the not promising consequence that resulted from the error of trying to problem solve and not really having tools to be successful from the beginning. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, then those family relationships are are so important and hopefully where you're going to get a lot of that opportunity to practice and and build these skills. So that's a really great point as well. Thinking about um, a lot of our kids, what are kids that are struggling with this skill? You know, we know kids struggle with social skills and problem solving across diagnoses and age and all that. The ne- what are some of the negative impacts of struggling specifically with that kind of social problem solving? What, what kind of negative impacts can that lead to um, for kids that don't yeah. have this in their repertoire? I think it's really important to think of, you mentioned earlier how our social problems sort of evolve in complexity as we grow older. And so I think for some of the younger learners, it can look very um, sort of non-essential at times, like perhaps they're just not having an easy time um, playing with other peers. Perhaps they're having some difficulty with like shared playing or um, team building type of activities and 
I think at a younger age, it can be easy to sort of overlook the importance of problem solving in those moments. But as individuals grow older, the social problems become more complex. And now it could be more like um, an isolated situation where peers are no longer wanting to engage with the individual who maybe has a weaker repertoire of, of problem solving for social situations. And it could also mean that there's no maintenance of relationships. And so there's no um, building of a connection with another peer. And, and it can become a lot more complex over time as relationship struggles become more advanced. And you think about like kind of junior high, high school kids too, you're with those same kids for years, which is a good thing, but also a hard thing. Cause if you've kind of established those like aversive effects, then those are the kids you're with for seventh and eighth grade. And you, you kind of run out of opportunities to practice and build connections on. Yeah, for sure. And I think just thinking too of like across the lifespan, for many of older learners, there is a desire to have romantic relationships and to explore things like dating. And if we don't have problem solving skills at the earlier level, it can really be a lot harder to navigate problems that come with these more advanced relationships too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like every, anyone in a relationship has to like practice and build their problem solving skills. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. So what are some strategies that teachers and clinicians and parents can be utilizing to start to build these skills with their learners? So I think the first sort of approach that can be useful is really taking on the perspective of managing conflicts through problem solving. So when we talk about problem solving, we're talking about it in this sort of perspective of it being a process type of behavior. So it's not just like this one thing you do, but more so a process of behaviors that you engage in like a chain that leads to some outcomes. So with problem solving, we're specifically looking at identifying what the different perspectives of the people involved in the problem scenario are, and then coming up with a list of solutions and possible outcomes to those solutions to inform what decision you're going to make to help solve that problem. So I think for teachers in the classroom or parents in the home or in the community, a good approach that we can take is first become really good at spotting problems. So we know, okay, this is an, a, a time where we can use um, a learning opportunity or, or have a teaching moment to practice these steps. And then really just support in going through those motions, figuring out what's your perspective as the individual, what's the other person's possible perspective as a participant in the situation, and then what are some solutions that you might think of, and what are some of the outcomes that would follow those solutions if you were to use them? And now that you've sort of thought out some of the solutions, what do you think is the best choice, and let's try it and see what happens. And it's actually really interesting to me because um, in my experience of teaching this skill, what I found is like I was getting a lot of practice with it too because each time that I would go to have a teaching moment, I would walk through the steps myself. And what I found for myself is that it really became this sort of covert process that stuck. And so now I feel that whenever I run into conflicts, I go through those motions in my head and I say, okay, well, here's my perspective. Here's what the other person might be thinking. And here's three things that I'm thinking I could do. And then these are the things I think might happen if I do each of these. And so this seems like the best approach. And it's sort of something that becomes quick and, and easy and you just start doing automatically, but it takes those repetitive practice opportunities to get to that point. And so I think that's the goal with the skill is to get it to be a, a sort of fluent, 
automatic process that occurs covertly or perhaps even overtly if you want to talk it out with someone that really supports you in planning out why you're doing what you're doing in that situation to help resolve whatever conflict is in place. It's so interesting that you notice in yourself through like teaching, you're like, oh yeah, like now I'm using this more and like can see that process happen within your own thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Because when we were first thinking about problem solving in a sort of social approach to navigating conflicts, we were thinking of like, well, what would the steps even be? And perhaps this is what we do. But when I thought back to it, it's like, I never did that before. I mean, maybe some people have like really great problem solving skills, but I never like sat down and said, okay, here's things I could do and here's what might happen. But it really makes sense to have that sort of mediating strategy to guide you through to make sure that you're sort of pre-planning what could happen and that you're choosing an outcome that would benefit all of the individuals involved. So when starting to teach this process, do you recommend kind of doing some like modeling or role playing with more like contrived problems first or jumping in with like real occurring situations or how do you recommend starting this out? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say it probably depends on the current status of problems in that learner's environment. So if perhaps they're dealing with a lot of social conflicts, perhaps they're really struggling with peers or with their siblings, it might be a good idea to sort of start with a contrived, more controlled small practice opportunity that isn't going to evoke a lot of emotional responding or a lot of um, sort of additional weight. And if you have a learner who maybe doesn't struggle with it um, very profoundly, but it's something you want to start practicing because you know that there's going to be opportunities in some near future, in that case, it might be okay to start with just capturing natural Um, opportunities or also mixing in some contrived opportunities. But I would say for learners that are actively struggling with it, it would probably be helpful to start with more controlled, smaller scale scenarios so that we don't put them in very stressful situations that could evoke a lot of emotional responding. Yeah, that's true. Because when you're like in the moment of a problem, you know, it's very emotion driven sometimes. So like kind of removing that piece might be helpful. Yeah. With when kind of again starting this process and teaching this skill, do you rec- have you found it helpful for some students to maybe write it out and have like that visual component as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we studied this approach and we um, had our, our set of learners that went through learning this strategy, we did use a worksheet. So we had a worksheet um, which actually can be found in the Flexible and Focused book by Dr. Adamadowski. So if you're interested in using that worksheet, it's available there. And what we did was we handed them the worksheet each session and we said at some point, you know, there might be a problem and when it happens, this is the worksheet you can use to help you solve it. Some learners liked to write on it. They liked actually writing it out and completing it. Others just liked us reading it aloud and them responding vocally to the questions on the worksheet. So I really think it's whatever is going to be most engaging to the learner. So if they prefer to write, that's cool. Sometimes they would want us to write it for them because they wanted to be able to read it over, but they didn't want to actually take the time to write it or didn't feel like it was worth their sort of effort to write it. So in those cases, we would write out their response responses for them. So I think whatever makes the process easiest, because the goal is to take the practice home. So we want to really focus on practicing going through those steps. And so making them as easy to complete and as effortless to complete, I think is essential so that it doesn't become sort of an aversive task, like something that you don't want to do. 
Yeah, if you're like, oh gosh, now I have to get this worksheet out to solve a problem. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and thinking about maybe from in a classroom perspective too, when when problems are naturally arising and maybe you're in this process of teaching it, what is your recommendation on on kind of you know jumping in? I'm thinking especially about those like preteen teenagers that they're like, gosh, don't inter- don't get involved, adults. This is so embarrassing. But how how can you intervene without kind of stigmatizing that that student that situation but also like prompt to like hey remember like we talked about this and like this is the time to use it if that makes sense yeah that's a really good question and I think it especially becomes trickier in natural situations like we mentioned we can contrive some things and in those situations I think it's a lot easier to sort of pull out a worksheet and go through that completion component but in the natural environment it might also be like an interruption to step in and have this whole sort of worksheet to be completed and so perhaps any sort of visual reminder like it might just be like some steps that are written now in some sort of visual format to sort of prompt the individual that's in the social problem to go through those steps and you know in our in our study we never really assess like what happens if we make the worksheet shorter or if we just have some sort of visual and so i think that's a really great future development of what we have to learn regarding what we need as tools to get us through this problem solving sort of chain. And and we don't know if maybe just a smaller, shorter visual or any sort of reminder would have the same effect. But I think it's something we can definitely try and explore whether that would be equally beneficial. Yeah, I think so too. I think that would be interesting to see. And thinking about, you know, you mentioned you've done some some research on, on this strategy and in your studies, did you see kind of progress with this skill and maintenance over time for the learners that were using this approach? Yeah, good question. So it was actually the coolest thing because when we first started it, we used the worksheet from the Flexible and Focused book and we were wondering, like, do we think they'll always need the worksheet? Like, what if at some point they don't need it? Well, we don't know. Let's see what happens. And so we went about our way of, of using the worksheet with our participants. And then at some point, we realized that they were just like solving problems really fast without even looking at the worksheet. And we were like, whoa, well, that's cool that that happened, but we have no idea like how that happened or why that happened. <laughs> and so what we ended up doing was embedding these natural environment probes where we would present social problems, so some conflict with some other person without the worksheet. So on our typical research sessions, we would give them the worksheet at the beginning and say, at some point, you know, there's going to be a problem with someone. So here's your worksheet that you can have to help you solve them. And then on the natural environment probes, we would just show up and have a problem and never give them the worksheet. And what we found is that they were now successfully solving these problems, having a really good success outcome with presenting some sort of solution, even without the worksheet. And we retrospectively asked like, well, what did you do? And they actually did say like, I went through the steps in my head. And so it was cool to see this sort of, it felt like day and night of I'm using this worksheet and now I'm not. And I think it was just that repeated practice with it. At least for me, that's what I found happened was I would repeatedly practice this worksheet. And then suddenly I found myself going through the steps in my head. So, I mean, it's plausible that that's what happened. Of course, we don't know because we don't have access to whatever's happening internally, but it definitely felt that way. So it was cool to see that sort of jump. Um, But I don't necessarily think that that would happen for everybody. I think it's really dependent on everyone's sort of individual way of 
storing and using information. And so perhaps for other folks, a, a small visual would be helpful or some sort of um, vocal reminder to themselves that they could use to help them remember to go through these steps. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool to see it like really kind of shift like that and become something that's part of what they're doing on their own. Yeah. And we went back um, two, four and six weeks after using the training of the worksheet and assessed what happened when we presented social problems and no worksheet. And it did maintain. So even six weeks after treatment, we saw that whenever there was a social conflict, they were readily providing some sort of solution that helped them resolve the conflict. Cool. And out of curiosity, what kinds of social problems were being presented to the participants? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was really what we did to sort of figure out what problems we would use because we were trying to figure out local, what kind of problems can we present to where we have enough practice opportunities that we're not always presenting a similar problem. And so we kind of just observed like what typically happens that results in some issue. And what we found was things like wanting to go first at some sort of game at the same time as siblings. So like if both people wanted to go first or if someone had said something and they didn't follow through. So maybe brother would say like I'm gonna be done with the computer in 15 minutes and then you can go and like half an hour would go by and they were still playing or if there was any sort of like interruptive situation so like for one of our participants um their personal space in the home had been filled with items by somebody else and so they were like whoa why is this in my space so anything that really dealt with someone else having some sort of thing to resolve to get what you needed in that situation. I think that's really good advice though, to kind of figure out what problems are typically happening. And you could so easily replicate that in a classroom or in a home, like, Hey, what, what typically are we seeing at, at recess and at lunch and at free time when kids are chatting and interacting, what are the issues that we're seeing? What are the issues we're seeing with siblings and pulling from those exemplars? Yeah, exactly. And like you mentioned, we can make so many variations too to give some additional practice opportunities that might be similar, but just with some different exemplars or something like that. In this study, how long was this like teaching phase where you were kind of using the worksheet and going through this these strategies? Yeah, that's a good question. It varied for each of our participants. So our first participant, I believe, took maybe like three-ish weeks. Um, don't quote me on that, but I, I remember it being a little bit, but not too long. And then our second participant was sort of in the middle of COVID. So it really stretched out the amount of time that we took for training. And most of our training in the beginning was in person, at home, or in the clinic. And then we switched to telehealth. And we found that when we switched to telehealth due to the pandemic, we did see a big drop in performance. So we had to sort of do some retraining via telehealth. Um, but we found that the training was just as effective via telehealth, we just sort of had to switch some things up. So like instead of pointing to the steps on the worksheet, we highlighted them so it could be more um, visually, I guess, accommodating to a telehealth platform since you mm -hmm. can't always see the little cursor. It's different than if somebody like points to it with their finger. So we made a few modifications and we found that the telehealth worked out too. And so that sort of took us a little bit more time. So participant two had the longest training and then our third participant, I believe, was similar to participant one, where it was maybe like two or three weeks. That's kind of cool to see different variations and how you can kind of accommodate the same strategy to work within different settings. 
Yeah. And I think that's something for us as providers or as educators that we have to be mindful of too, is that it's not always going to work the same way for each individual or even in each setting. And so we can shift some things around to just make it work for whatever environment we're in or for whatever person we're working with. In in kind of the classroom setting, could you envision this? Because I was kind of, as you're talking through what this looks like, this I think could work kind of nicely even as like a small group, like social group kind of lesson as well. Yeah, I definitely see it working in that way. I also see it working in sort of a like everyone let's practice like we have this problem. Perhaps as a group, we have a problem where like we said we were going to go to lunch at 12 and now it's 1230 and we're falling behind or whatever. And so we might as a group think of like, well, what are some solutions that we could try? And then what would happen if we tried these? Like maybe we could phone over the lunchroom and say we're running late. And so that would mean that they know to expect us late. But then that would also mean that the next group that's coming is going to have to like wait for us to be done or that we're going to have to leave early. And so just sort of thinking of those, like, well, if we do this, then this outcome might happen. And so we have to pick the best option as a group, I think gets you the same or a similar practice opportunity than doing it in an, at an individual level. And I, gosh, I like, I feel like this would be so great in gen ed classrooms. I know like they have like so many, you know, things to work on and standards and all that, but like, oh my gosh, like in a sixth or seventh grade class, like talking through these things and then Gosh, once you get to social media and online contingencies, it's even more complicated. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, too, like you mentioned, just for at really any level, we can find little social conflicts that arise that could benefit from practice. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for for sharing these ideas because I think these are super applicable to a lot of different settings and and different types of students and clients that people are working with. So I so appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And in our study, there's a whole table of problems that we use. So if you're interested in getting more ideas, you can always look at that. And I mentioned the worksheet is also available. So if that's something you're interested in using or revising in some way, I think it'd be really cool to see what tools we can come up with that just sort of extend what we've done so far and find new ways to teach this really cool skill. Awesome. And I will link that in the show notes. Um, Where can people go to learn more from you? Well, they can follow my Instagram. So Behavior Guru is my handle if you're interested in following along. I try to share just a little bit of everything that interests me or that I run into. So hopefully it's helpful to some. And if there's anything that anyone's ever interested in diving deeper into, I always love just diving into anything that would be helpful. So I'm always open to suggestions on things that we can learn about. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Vic. This was so much fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.
Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.